Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm going to get right to it and tell you how excited I am about the podcast you're about to hear and about the guest it features. The entire time we were recording it, I was thinking about all of you and how much I knew you would love it. Joining me today is one of America's truly great nonfiction writers. Eric Larson has written a remarkable six New York Times bestselling books, and his newest, The Splendid and the Vile, is at press time the number one bestselling book in America on both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times bestseller list. While entirely unintentional, Eric's book is astoundingly well-timed inasmuch as it tells the story of someone who masterfully led people in a time of profound crisis. And while Eric acknowledges that The Splendid in the Vile also wasn't intentionally written as a leadership book, I'm here to tell you that is exactly what it ended up becoming. So just a quick background, The Splendid in the Vile focuses on Sir Winston Churchill in his first year as England's prime minister. Timeline begins almost exactly 80 years ago, and in Eric's words, quote, This is the year in which Churchill became Churchill, the cigar-smoking bulldog we all know, when he made all of his famous speeches and showed the world what courage and leadership look like. By concentrating on just one year of Churchill's tenure as prime minister, Eric is able to brilliantly flesh out the qualities and behaviors that distinguish Churchill as being not just one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, but as one of the greatest leaders of all time. At the onset of our discussion, I asked Eric if he believes Churchill was a leader sent by the gods, someone none of us should dream of emulating, and gratefully he assures us that were we to adopt the practices that made Churchill a great leader, we ourselves could be great as well. And to give you just some final context, the story begins in May of 1940. Germany has invaded Poland, France is about to fall to the Nazis, and England is about to endure 57 days of consecutive bombings that would inevitably injure 52,000 citizens, kill 45,000 people, nearly 6,000 of them children. In one of the grimmest of times in Britain's history, Churchill was able to sustain the country's hopes, unite world leaders against the terrible foe, and spearhead the actions that ultimately made them victorious. My guest is about to tell you how he did it. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Eric Larson. Well, thank you very much. Well, I am beyond excited to have you here and to discuss Winston Churchill, most notably what I think is truly remarkable leadership practices that he displayed in the crisis, which many of us are going through right now, as you know. And I'd like to really start off by getting to know you a little bit. And I'm a huge admirer of your work. And I know that you've written six New York Times bestsellers, including The Devil in the White City, which is a book that millions of people loved. I understand they're actually doing a Hulu movie of that now. So congratulations. And it was a finalist for the National Book Award. So you're an extraordinary writer. And I thought I'd start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey, how you go about choosing the topics that you write about, anything you'd like to give us as sort of an introduction to you. Well, talk about choosing the subjects that I write about. It's That is a very complicated thing. Well, I don't know how complicated it is. It's just that it's a very difficult thing. That's the hardest part of what I do. In fact, my friend and publicist, Penny Simon, 
once coined a phrase for that, and that's for that period when I'm looking for an idea. And it's, as she put it, it's when I'm in the dark country of no ideas. The thing is, when I'm looking for an idea, I look for something very particular because I write books in a particular way. They have to be true stories. You can't make things up. And so, but they have to also read like a story, you know, that is to say something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and maybe a little energy along the way. And to find that kind of idea takes a long time because you have to meet those criteria. That First of all, it has to be interesting to me. <laughs> it's kind of important. B, it has to have some kind of a strong narrative engine inherent in the event. And C, there has to be a very deep archival reservoir of original and varied materials, you know, everything from telegrams to letters to memoirs and so forth. And if something meets those criteria, it may work, not always, but it's hard to find something actually that meets all those criteria. So anyway, that's how these things, these books come about. Have you ever started a book and actually got knee deep into it and realized that it didn't inspire you or it wasn't going to match up to your expectations and then move on? Or have you, are you, uh, once you get into it, you're determined to finish it? Oh, it, it happens, unfortunately. Happily, not that often. There are a number of phases to the idea t- testing process, if you will. Eventually, it gets to the point where maybe I have three contenders, and each one is sort of vying for being number one, and I kind of evaluate in all different ways, and I just sort of, you know, sleep on it. At one minute, I'll say, oh, I'll tell my wife, this is what I'm doing, and the next day, I'll say, ah, no, no, I'm going to do this other one. <laughs> and it keeps going like that until finally I just settle on that one idea. So by the time I settle on the idea, I'm pretty certain that the idea is actually going to work. But it has happened that I have gotten way deep into the process, way deep into doing a book proposal, which is the process with nonfiction books. You do a proposal about what you're going to do, and then rather than write the entire book, because you know you need you need advance money to to do research and so forth. But it has been the case that on at least two occasions that I have gotten to the end of my book proposal and ready to pull the plug and ready to send this thing into my agent and have him send it to my editor and just decided, you know, for whatever reason, this is just not going to work. It's not something missing. So, but happily, those moments are are relatively few. However, the flip side of the same thing is that it does take me a long time to find that next idea, typically about a year between when I'm done with the book and when I start the next. Well, that's a very patient process that you have. Just out of curiosity, how long did it take you soup to nuts to write The Splendid in the Bio? Soup to nuts? It depends on, it depends on the soup part. Uh, yeah, the conception. <laughs> the conception goes back to, I don't know, was it now, 2020? Maybe it was five years ago. And then the proposal process took me probably about six months. But, you know, the, the proposal process, as long as, it, even though it's a long process, it's money in the bank. You know, it's all useful material. It's, it's a good jumpstart on what you're sure, going to do. Sure. So, but I'd say from soup to nuts, from conception to when the book was done. I'm not talking about the launch, but when the book was actually done. That is to say, when the final proofs have been read by me and by a proofreader, and it's all over but the shouting. So I would say five years. But again, that's not like a Sistine Chapel thing where I'm on my back, you know, painting for the entire time, especially in the beginning. There are intervals where I'm doing other things and coming back to this and so forth. But overall, I'd say five years from conception to finish is a good measure. 
Well, your timing seems extraordinary in terms of when the book actually did come out. Well, I, cer- I certainly planned it exactly that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know that's not true, right. but, no. you know, but it's amazing how things work out. And so we're discussing this in April, and next month marks the 80th anniversary of when Winston Churchill was named England's prime minister. And so what influenced you to not only choose Churchill as your subject, but then to narrowly focus on just one year, his first year in that role? Well, it's funny, actually. Neither neither was the explicit intent when I started out with this. In fact, it was not Churchill who brought me to this story, believe it or not, and it was not certainly, therefore, his first year as prime minister either. What it was was a process of, and, and actually this is, kind of emblematic as to how ideas have come to be in the past. What had happened with this was that my wife and I had lived in Seattle for years and years, and our three daughters went off to begin their adult lives, and we realized it was getting awfully quiet around the house, so we decided to change it up, and we moved to Manhattan, where I'd always wanted to live. When I moved to Manhattan, I had this kind of epiphany about the nature of 9-11, We had watched that whole horror unfold in Seattle in real time on CNN, as did many people, obviously around the world, millions. And it was horrific as it was. But when we got to New York, this epiphany was that the experience of New Yorkers was just an order of magnitude more wrenching, more vivid than anything I could have imagined. I mean, I just somehow I just I felt that as soon as I moved to New York. And above all was that sense of violation you know, of their hometown by these attackers. So I started thinking kind of, you know, very soon after that about the the German air campaign against London. And I thought, you know, how on earth did anybody survive that? I mean, we're still reeling in a way from 9-11. And the German air campaign, especially the portion we know as the Blitz, was 57 consecutive nights of bombing, 57 consecutive 9-11s, if you will. How on earth did anybody survive that? I thought at first about doing a very deep saga about one family in London. And I started thinking, wait a minute, why not the quintessential family, Winston Churchill and his family and his advisors, how they dealt with it, but really how they dealt with it on a daily basis. And believe it or not, nobody had done that before. Nobody had sort of looked at that. And it just so happened that the German air campaign and Churchill's ascent to prime minister it so happened that everything fit into essentially that first year of his prime ministry. He became prime minister on May 10, 1940. On May 10, 1941, the German air campaign came to an end. I'm not talking about the final, final end. I mean, there were resurgences of German air activity after that. But this was the critical air campaign by Germany. And it came to an end. You're talking about a year later. Yeah, it came to an end. But here's the order of battle, if you will. Churchill becomes prime minister on May 10, 1940. That's the day that Hitler invades Holland, Luxembourg, and Belgium. You know, the world essentially goes to hell that day. The so-called phony war comes to an end. Churchill, by the way, is delighted because nothing thrills him more, A, than being prime minister, B, than being prime minister in a time of war. He appointed himself defense minister because he's just so into this idea of being discharged. But so he becomes prime minister. The actual blitz, what we know as the blitz, does not begin until September 7, 1940. There's this long kind of suspenseful run-up to that period. Then once that happens, there are 57 consecutive nights of bombing. After that, there are another six months of intense raids, but at longer intervals. In fact, some of the worst raids of the war, people kind of forget that, some of the worst raids of the war were in that second six-month period, which came to an end on May 10, 1941. 
So it was really all that that brought me to the story. That it brought me to Churchill and brought me to that first year of his prime ministry. Your analogy to 9-11 is really, really, I mean, as somebody who grew up in New York and felt that connected and have a, a dear friend that passed away in that event, I can tell you that in reading your book, connecting into this idea of having towns and buildings and homes just and people being killed every single night, just being decimated. That idea of this is just a repeat of what people experienced in one day, 57 days in a row, is a great way to set this thing up. And so let me just define here that Churchill is not just known as one of the great leaders of the 20th century, but he's also really known as one of the greatest leaders of all time. And your book, as we discussed a little bit before we went recording, you know, this is a leadership book. I mean, it really describes what I think are his attributes and practices and intentions and skills that made him such an extraordinary leader. And if we could, what I'd like to do is to explore some of those with you, what I think are the really big ones, and ask you to give us some examples of how he embodied them and lived them and and actually even how he even knew to bring them to the fore. But before I do this, I have to ask you a question, Eric. Do you believe that Churchill was a once in a lifetime mythical leader? Or is he a leader whose practices, especially today, that you believe that we can and should emulate? And I'll say here that if you give me the wrong answer, it's going to ruin the podcast. (laughs) Well, let's just say certainly in Churchill's own mind, he was a mystical one time leader. But no, it's funny. It kind of begs the question, if there had been no Churchill, would Britain have prevailed? Would the world be the way it is now today? And I, I frankly have no way to really answer that. I'm not even sure how to think about that, because the reality is that Churchill was there and was such a vibrant, powerful individual. But, you know, the thing that he brought to the story, these are fundamental aspects I've come to believe since working on this book, honestly, fundamental aspects of what makes someone a great leader. And frankly, I think they're learnable and teachable and absorbable. But who might have done that? Who might have been up to that bar, if not Churchill, at least talking about the British Empire? I really can't say. I mean, who knows? It could be the Lord Beaverbrook, who was a key character in the book, who was a press baron, who became instrumental in helping Churchill raise production of fighters, which helped stave off this the German, the Luftwaffe, as well as stay off, frankly, invasion. Maybe Beaverbrook would have been a fantastic prime minister. I mean, who knows? And certainly Roosevelt was a very, very deft, very effective leader. But, you know, the fact is that Churchill was there, and, and, and aren't we thankful that he was? Because not only did he pull that whole situation out of the ashes, he did so in a very charismatic, colorful way. I'm so glad to hear you punctuate that you think that these are learnable and adaptable, and I totally agree with you. So what I'd like to do is start with confidence. When Churchill became prime minister, he was 65 years old, and something that I didn't know until reading your book, but he'd already been England's topmost naval official. So this is a big guy. And so I think, you know, he had already acquired great experience, and we have to presume wisdom at 65 years old with all that career experience. But you write that he had a knowing That was your word, that he was the man for the job. And in your quote, that he had the naked confidence that under his leadership, England would win the war. And so with all of our courage being challenged right now and sense of confidence in ourselves and whether we're making the right moves, how does someone cultivate self-belief like this? How did he acquire it and how can we acquire it? 
Well, confidence, <laughs> now, confidence may be one of those traits that is not totally learnable and totally teachable. But let me qualify that. The level of confidence that Churchill reflected was really, I think, rises mostly from that ineffable thing we describe as character. And then you have to ask yourself, where does character come from? And I have to confess, I have no idea. There's character and there's not. We see people who have character, you know, every day. I mean, somebody like Fauci, we see him on, on camera. That guy has character, right? We see others who don't have character. and We know it instantly when we see it. Churchill had character. Churchill had confidence that arose from that sense of character. However, having said that, I do think that confidence also arises from being wise enough to know that you need to understand deeply the situation that you are confronting, that you can't, when you're in a position of leadership during an existential moment, when you know, there's an existential threat to your livelihood, your life, your well-being, you can't fake it to make it. Yep. You know, you need to know the facts, you need to know the reality, and you need to be able to convey that to everybody around you. So his confidence was part the fact that he was Churchill after all, you know, had always been confident that he at some point that this was his destiny to become the prime minister of the British Empire. Right. But there was also this confidence that arose from the fact that he understood the nature of battle because he had been in wars. He had been first lord of the Admiralty in charge of the essentially all the British naval apparatus. He had failed in that, by the way, on his first go around. He had been thrown out as first lord of the Admiralty for a failed campaign, which we know today as the Gallipoli campaign. So he was not without error in the past. However, one also likes to think that error helps make somebody a leader as well. Mm -hmm. Failure in the past. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty evident that Churchill learned from having failed in the past, or at least was not daunted by those failures. You know, you mentioned character, which is not a word that comes up in your book, but it's so insightful. And I'm just curious if you think where we are in this place in time, when we get to the other side of this whole epidemic, do you think we as a society are going to put a higher price and value on character in the people that we put into leadership roles? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I, this, this, this time has revealed who does have character and who does not. And people have come to the fore who, who I think we can all be quite proud of, actually. And I think one of those might be, if I can mention names in this podcast, I mean, would be Andrew Cuomo. And I think somebody who many people actually had reviled in the past, uh, you know, he's attained a certain je ne sais pas quoi because he demonstrates what we know now today as character. But I think that what we're all going to come to when this is over, and God, I sure hope it's over relatively soon, but when this is over, I think we're all going to realize or recognize that this really put us into an introspective moment about where we are as a culture and as a society and indeed who our leaders are. And, you know, when this is all over, we're all going to pull out our receipt books and we're going to look around <laughs> and say, OK, this was an honorable man. This person was not. And, you know, act accordingly. I absolutely agree with you. I think that we're in this moment where the 
frenetic noise level of our society has been quieted down and people are having that time to reflect. They're reflecting on their lives. Am I doing the right things? Am I in the right job and career? But also, you know, what kind of a society and life do we want to live afterwards? So I think you're absolutely right. I mentioned courage ahead of myself here, but I want to get to that now. Courage is heart, of course. And so, Tell us, you know, in this period right now, where we're all kind of fearful about when is this going to end and is it going to end and what's our life going to be afterwards and ignoring the elephant in the room, which is, are we going to go back to work and am I going to have enough money to live and provide for my family? And the stresses are unbelievable. And so tell us how Churchill demonstrated courage over and over and why you think this is such an essential leadership quality. Yeah, I think that is, in fact, one of the elements that made Churchill a particularly potent leader. You know, as I talk about it in my book, I like to refer to it as he taught the British and others around the world. He taught people the art of being fearless. And again, I think that actually it is, fearlessness is, I think, almost a teachable thing. That is to say, you learn from those around you. And Churchill, above all, recognized the power of symbolic acts in trying to bring out, the, as he would have put it, bring out the courage that already already existed within people, but perhaps they didn't quite appreciate. And this, this power of symbolic acts stems from something as simple and elemental as never referring to Hitler by his name, hmm. always referring to him as that man or that wicked man. And when you think about that, that's a very, very interesting and compelling way to sort of demystify a threat or to diminish that threat. But anyway, that's at one end of the continuum. At the other end of the continuum is is just acting with courage. For example, when there was an air raid, Churchill, whether this was prudent or not, Churchill more than likely was more than likely, more than not, likely to go up on on the nearest rooftop to watch the the raid unfold Mm -hmm. and to bring people with him to watch whether they wanted to or not. And then also after the the first major deliberate raid on London, September 7, 1940, the next day he went to the docks which had been very heavily damaged. And the workers' housing, of course, was in the in the area. And he got out of his car with his limited entourage and walked among the people and showed them that he cared and showed them that he was there to help and also was not afraid of, you know, something befalling him as he was walking among the, the Bob Ruins. And this was a fairly risky thing, by the way, because, you know, this is the first time that he'd really done this kind of walking among the devastation. And one of his close advisors, Pug Ismay, General Hastings Ismay, nicknamed Pug, because he looked like a pug. Pug was concerned about this trip to the docks because he thought it could be that the people would be irate at Churchill for not protecting them from this raid. But it was very much the different, the, the, the opposite effect. And so through all these visible things that he did, people would be watching. They would be observing every day him as a model of somebody who was courageous, who was not going to give in to this German threat. So you answered the next question I was going to ask you, which is his motivation was so that people could see him being courageous. Yes. But at the same time, in your book, you sort of hint that when hundreds of planes are dropping these 4,000 pound bombs onto the city, one called Satan for its devastating effect, he's up on the roof watching this happen in real time. And so what's the difference between being courageous and reckless? Is there, did he cross (laughs) the line or not? Well, actually, 
<laughs> yeah, I do believe he crossed the line, and I think some of his uh, senior advisors and his wife believed he crossed the line. But you know, the thing about Churchill is that Churchill, not only did Churchill feel it was important to demonstrate courage, the fact of the matter is Churchill was courageous. Mm-hmm. He was again, this cuts to the nature of character. Whereas another leader might have to demonstrate courage, might have to force himself to do things that would appear to the public to be courageous. The bottom line was that Churchill was, in fact, immensely, inherently courageous, perhaps even fearless. There is, I I would argue, a difference between simply being courageous and being fearless. Fearless meaning essentially the absence of a sense of fear. I mean, Churchill, for example, I mean, not only did he go to the rooftops to watch these raids unfold, his daughter became an anti-aircraft one of his daughters, his daughter Mary, his youngest, began anti-aircraft gunner. Whenever he got the chance, he'd go and watch her anti-aircraft gun battery go after the German aircraft. He loved this. He loved the thrill of battle and so forth. So that was kind of a, a unique thing about him. But, you know, one of the least, least prudent things that he did, which he did on five occasions, was before the Blitz began, but after he became prime minister, in order to try to help bolster the French, he flew to France five times, five times at a point when the air over the English Channel was full of German fighters and bombers and so forth. I mean, do you do that in a time of war at a time, first of all, when flying was not that reliable a thing? The risk of being confronted by a German fighter plane is very high. And then at the same time, you're bringing like, you know, probably two-thirds of your senior advisors. An entourage. <laughs> was he just convinced that no harm was going to befall him? Or was this another one of these symbolic acts? Did he want people to see him as being, I'm more fearless than everybody else? So you can be courageous too? Is that what it was? Well, it was certainly symbolic. Yes, he understood that having done it, that the symbolic power of power was great. But I also have to say in churches, in terms of Churchill, I don't think he gave it a second thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to France. I'm going to see if my advice can bolster the French because it's vital. And plus, he loved all the, the thrill of it. I mean, I can't imagine how excited Churchill must have been on one of these flights in particular when his aircraft, which was a twin-engine Flamingo aircraft, decked out with these incredibly plush armchairs. I'd like to fly in a plane like that. But he took off in this Flamingo aircraft, his favorite aircraft, and was joined in the sky by an escort of a dozen hurricane fighters. That must have just thrilled Churchill Mm. to no end. He loved all that. So in that respect, he's very much a rare character, but that doesn't take away from the fact that recognizing this power, this power of symbolism, you know, one extension of that is the term on a much more banal level, of course, is this idea of a leadership concept referred to as management by walking around, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. management by, yeah. by being seen to be to be engaging and participating and people recognizing that this guy who's the CEO of your company just walked through and saw you, you know, throwing paper planes at your neighbor. <laughs> you know, that's, you don't want to do that, right? So there's probably a, a reasonable parallel there somewhere. You're talking about a basic element of management and the other part of that is that what people see you exhibiting is what they tend to emulate. Exactly. So if he's trying to get the society courageous, he had some pretty good instincts. And I love that language of symbolic acts and just having the consciousness to say, I'm doing this specifically. At some point in your book, I think he was going to be giving degrees at a university and the yes. town where he was going to be had just been, you know, bomb the shit out of it. It's basically what happened. And so he's now going in there and, you know, trying to rally people. And there were so many people that wanted to see him that he took his bowler hat 
and put it on his cane and elevated it so that people could actually yeah. see. And I just like the brilliance of that is that I'm here. Yes. You may not be able to see me, but I'm here <clears throat> to give people that feeling. That's an extraordinary moment of leadership as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, you know, carrying that further, that was Bristol mm-hmm. after his very serious raid over to the city of Bristol and, and Churchill and, and a very large entourage in that case, his special train with him, his wife, with Mary Churchill, his youngest living daughter, with all of his most senior advisors, you know, they were on their way to Bristol where he was going to confer some honorary degrees because he was the nominal chancellor of Bristol University. And he was going to confer these honorary degrees. And the night that this raid takes place, they're all in the special train on a siding outside Bristol as this raid is blowing Bristol to pieces. But he's still, and his entourage, they still come into Bristol the next day. They still conduct this degree ceremony, Churchill and all his regalia, and others on the platform who were, they were dressed in their university regalia as well, only over clothing that was soot covered and charred, that people arrived at this thing, obviously wet from fire hoses and with soot on their faces and so forth. And this in itself was a very clearly symbolic mm-hmm. thing. I mean, there were literally buildings on fire next door to the place where they were awarding these degrees. And then when Churchill was done, when he came out onto the steps, he did this impromptu speech. Now, this is also another thing that made him a fantastic leader, of course, was his oratorical skills, his ability to walk and talk at the same time. He does this extemporaneous speech that the rest of us would have died to have done even after six weeks of writing and writing. And of course now nature happened to help at that particular point because as they're leaving this this university building after the degree ceremony, suddenly suddenly incredibly we know this from a diary, suddenly incredibly the, the, the clouds parted and the sun came out. So we can't attribute that to good leadership, but, you know, he was there and therefore he was there for when this thing happened. But anyway, he was followed by this massive crowd of people who just adored him and they followed him through the town. They followed him to the train. He gets in the train. He's waving to everybody as the train pulls out of out of the station. And when the train is finally out of sight of all of these people, that's when he breaks down. He picks up a newspaper and shields himself from his peers in the car. He begins to weep, which is something he was not at all ashamed of. He starts to weep and he says something to the effect that how grave the responsibility is to people that sort of conferred on him. But it was a very, very powerful moment. I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I hadn't intended to go there, but this notion of crying, some people just have an instinctive reaction that that's a leadership weakness or a human weakness, particularly, you know, amongst us men. But, you know, there was a woman in that crowd who said, he cares about us. You know, when she saw him with tears in his eyes, that she could feel that there was empathy and compassion and that he was feeling it. He wasn't just, you know, sort of mechanical, right? I mean, that's a quality that is magnificent. Yeah, one of the things that characterized Churchill, I feel, was, it's no exaggeration to say, he loved war. He loved the thrill of battle. He loved the the planes, the bombs. He loved the, the idea of directing these forces in these cataclysmic battles. But at the same time, he had a deep sense of empathy, a very deep, rich moral core, if you will. He appreciated the deep, deep tragedy of the thing. I think that's very important. You can't have one. I think the best leaders can't be just one or the other. You know, you can't be out there 
weeping and so forth the whole time, and you can't be out there, you know, not acknowledging the pain and suffering. So he was that wonderful combination, that yin-yang combination of the two. I mean, that really defines the whole purpose of this podcast for what it's worth, is the, in traditional business settings, we lean into the mind, we lean into the nuts and bolts of the operations and leave your troubles behind. And, you know, we're not going to connect with you as a human being. And when you can see through your book, how powerful this was for people, but it also drove him, you know, it was a component of what motivated his behavior. He cared so much about his people, his country, that he was willing to sacrifice his entire life for it. This wasn't just to fulfill his ego, right? Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. It's absolutely true. No, he, he had this wonderful sense of empathy. But, you know, the mix gets even more complicated than this. I mean, you know, on the one hand, he was able to demonstrate fearlessness. He was also able to weep in public over the pathos of the whole thing. But it's also the case that within the confines of 10 Downing Street or you know, the Prime Minister of the United States checkers, the people who worked hardest close to him were had this cadre of private secretaries, which frankly reduces the sense of what they really did. They were really more like deputy prime ministers, this cadre of, of young, very hardworking men. But they knew Churchill to be, you know, those things, of course, this incredibly brave and able to weep and so forth. They also knew him, and this really complicates the picture a bit, although I would argue that it doesn't, but they also knew him to be deeply inconsiderate, rude, mm. unapologetic. He would, if he blew up at you, he would never apologize. And yet, at the same time, he never, he never nursed a grudge. You always knew when the storm had passed, you wouldn't apologize, but you always knew by some gesture, some look, something that he would do or say that would tell you that things were all better. And then to add to that, there's the idea that he was a lot of fun. He could blow up one minute and the next he could have everybody in hysterics. And so, so there was this incredibly nuanced, textured mm-hmm. eye. The net effect was the people who worked for him loved him loved disregarding the rudeness, disregarding the inconsiderateness. They loved it. You're describing a real powerful offset. Obviously, every leader is flawed. We all have our limitations. People see them and know them. In his case, he could be rude to people. But what you're describing to me is an instinct that said, you know what, (laughs) for whatever reason, I may not be able to apologize, but I'm not going to leave people standing in ambiguity as to how they stand with me. So I don't know if it was a wink or whatever it is that you're describing, but something that would imply to people, we just had this, it's over with, you and I are in good shape. Yeah, it was more more like an hour. (laughs) I mean, he was very good at at compartmentalizing analyzing things, which I think is very important. And, I love that. You know, he, yeah, one thing I found very compelling was he took time out to write this very compassionate letter to the Belgian ambassador in exile after his sons had been killed in a freak train fire on their way back to school. Three of them, right? Three sons, yeah. yeah. And he wrote this compassionate letter to this guy in the midst of having to deal with these major cataclysmic movements of troops and potential strategic debacles and so forth, he took the time to write that letter. That's very, very important. Mm. Wow. I mean, this is another one of those symbolic acts, right? But also character. You mentioned speeches, and we can't talk about Winston Churchill without them. And you have many of them in there. I mean, you have quotations from these speeches, and they're just like 
unbelievable. They're articulate, eloquent, learned, and unbelievably inspiring almost every time. And he could do this extemporaneously, not just in the ones that he prepared. So he mastered speaking for a reason. I don't think this just came to him. So he's quoting Tennyson on the rooftop while they're bombing. I mean, this is somebody who made an intention of becoming a great communicator. And how'd that happen? But remember that also he comes from a world at that time where young men of his ilk, his generation, were intensely well-educated. You know, the memorizing of Tennyson, I don't think that was a deliberate effort on his part to show anything to anybody except that he just happened to be aware of this of this poem, Loxley Hall, and to have memorized a portion of it. But he was aware, of course, of the power. And in that age, this, this was perhaps a more more valued skill than maybe it is now. But he was aware of the power of speech, of the power of what it meant to be able to deliver a well-crafted, emotive speech. He was always aware of that. And he was very good at that. He was aware that he was very good at it. And his speeches really became one more in this palette of leadership tool that exemplified him. You know, and there was a there was a pattern to these speeches. Mm-hmm. And here too, this is not something that the gods bestowed on Churchill and that nobody else can mimic. These were very practical things. You know, I've looked at these speeches, and one of the things that seems to characterize the most important ones, and it was this period, by the way, of May 10, 1940 to May 10, 1941, where where he did really his best, most memorable speeches. That's the period where Churchill became the Churchill we all think we know. Mm-hmm. His greatest hits. Yeah, well, his greatest hits, but also just the things about him that we came to, we, the historical, we all came to sort of know and know and love and to honor. But the speeches, when you look at them, yes, he had these wonderful phrases and these sentences, which, you know, went down in history, weren't necessarily that impressive at the moment to people who listened, but became much later, these, these things we recall. But those phrases and those one-off sentences are, are one thing. But was, to me, the genius of Churchill's speeches was the way he structured them. He spent time talking about the reality of the situation, the true gravity of the situation, which was, I mean, this was really a very dark time, probably the darkest time of the the history of the British Empire, and really was an existential moment. And he made it clear in his speeches, some of the speeches, that things were very grave, that this was the situation, that this was a bad thing. And he was not trying to sugarcoat, he's not trying to as I like to put it, I mean, he's not interested in delivering any happy talk to people. This was the reality. At the same time, the way he structured the speeches, they didn't follow that with real cause for optimism. And again, not happy talk, but real grounds for why maybe things aren't as bad as you think or will get better soon. And then he would finish the speech with this rhetorical flourish that would metaphorically make people rise from their seats, you know, and just sort of honor the fact that they had just heard this tremendous speech. The thing about Churchill's speeches is, invariably, when you listen to him speak, you left the room, if you will, wherever you happen to hear it, whether it's on the radio or in the House of Commons, whatever, you left the room feeling better, better about yourself, better about the British Empire. You left the room feeling stronger, 
feeling like you were a part of what was happening and a bold part and heroic. I want to take those three pieces apart here for a second, because all three of them in my mind could be uncommon unto themselves. But to structure his communications, his speeches specifically, with these three components. And you think about the crisis that we're in right now. The very first one is that he provided an unvarnished truth, right? So we don't know if they're coming to bomb us, but you can be sure they're planning on it. That was one of the things that he conveyed to people, which would have been terrifying. But he wanted to make sure that people understood that he wasn't hiding anything and that they understood it. And then from there, once he had people grounded in what the dark side of the possibilities could be, then it became, I want to show you why we have reason to be optimistic. And then he did something which I think is what you call his knack for making people feel loftier, stronger, and above all, more courageous. He made Britons feel invincible. Yes. How did he do that? Again, that's his rhetorical skill. But, you know, one way that he did it, I believe, and I think actually this is very important for national leaders, and we'd like to see this again at some point in one of our national leaders in America. But first of all, he was incredibly well-read and also a terrific writer. But he had this great grasp of history, of the long sweep of British history. You know, he could place this in this context of of glorious campaigns from the past and get his listeners to place themselves in this great long saga of the British Empire and the heroics of the past and the heroics that would be called upon today. And they would then march forth and be part of this broader picture. I do think that that was a very important part of what he was able to do but also just by encouraging people and also by just being openly, nakedly defiant. That was very helpful. Do you think that he deeply believed in the potential of people? In other words, did he have a confidence that people would meet him where he wanted them to meet him with this degree of courage and optimism and hope, despite the fact that, you know, they're being bombed 57 nights in a row and entire towns are being destroyed and 7,500 children are being killed. I mean, night after night after night of this. Did he believe that he could sustain people with this kind of rhetoric or did he believe in the hardened people, I guess is what I'm getting at. I think that he did believe that the people had the strength to persevere. But I think he also understood that the strength to persevere could be a conceivably a tenuous thing and had to be nurtured. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be very easy for people to fall into despair. And that's why I think his efforts to bolster them were so very important. Like, as he said in one speech, I'm misquoting this, but it'd be foolish to underestimate the gravity of the situation. Equally foolish to lose heart, lose courage. And, you know, putting something in that context, a very, very valuable thing. And also just simply making the point that, that you know, this too shall pass. We're going to tough this out and we're going to prevail. Which is something actually I'd kind of like to hear somebody say now, you know, the bottom line is this is not a, it may seem it, but the the COVID pandemic is not in terms of the broad picture of the world. It's not an existential moment for civilization. It's a horrible, horrible thing that we're going through, but it's going to end. And certainly how Churchill would have approached it. Wow. Eric, we have a segment on the podcast where we ask our guests a few questions about their personal interests, influences and philosophy. And we call this the heartbeat round because all the questions are brief and we want you to answer each of them instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm game. Okay, cool. If one exists, a leader in the world today who possesses many of Churchill's greatest qualities. 
<clears throat> None. <laughs> but maybe former President Obama. One book you wish everyone in the world would read. War and Peace. Churchill loved to eat, drink, and smoke cigars. Name a guilty pleasure you share in common. All three. Although okay. I, I don't smoke cigars as much as I'd like because they tend to make me feel sick the next day. There you go. Romeo and Juliet. Are you smoking the... Romeo and Juliet, uh, very good cigars. Very good. Okay. That's the one Churchill smoked. The trait you admire most in other people. Sense of humor. One thing about your writing process that we'd all be surprised to learn. The fact that when I'm writing, I always stop a day's work when I'm ahead of the game and when I know where I'm going to be going the next day. Sometimes I'll stop in a, the middle of a sentence or even middle of a paragraph, but I always stop when I'm ahead. Your synonym for the word heart. Guts. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. I'll have a martini at 6 p.m. tonight. <laughs> Favorite UK band, singer or author? John Le Carre. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Dealing with digital video platforms. Best part about living in New York? Walking. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? The New Yorker. One piece of advice you'd give to your younger self? Shave that beard. <laughs> a Winston Churchill quote you've learned by heart? None, because I have a terrible short-term memory and always have. Which is why I could never be a, a good pianist, no matter how hard I tried, because I just couldn't remember repertoire. Interesting. And one that might surprise you. What's the significance to you of Oreos and pencils? Ah... Uh, Oreos, double stuff Oreos, have become my morning jump starter. One of those with a cup of coffee sort of sets the ritual up for the day. The pencil is a Ticonderoga number two pencil, the best pencil ever made. And I use those when I confront a particularly difficult writing challenge. Well, this is my my little collection of Ticonderoga 2 yellow pencils, and I saw that on your <laughs> website, and I thought, absolutely, I had to ask you. So thank you. This has just been a wonderful, wonderful heartbeat round. So thank you very much, Eric. Thank you very much. So I sense all of us want to be inspired the way we've been talking about this whole time. And I'm wondering if you, I know this isn't your normal audience, but there's certainly a subset of your audience, leaders and CEOs and, you know, managers within their own teams of how they can elevate people in the way you just described. So we may not be getting it as a society. We're not being given the inspiration and, and hope, you know, that we would perhaps not only want, but we would especially need right now. But in our own teams of people, regardless of the size, what are ways that we can step into that and be Churchillian, if you will. Are you talking specifically about this COVID situation? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because this isn't going to go away. You know, I thought you know, when we first started talking about this, that this was going to be something that was just going to be a wave. But the economic downturn that's going to follow this and the challenge of rehiring people and getting people back into society in a normal way. We have no idea how long this is going yeah, to take. Yeah. Two weeks after this happened, Gallup did a survey and found out that one third of Americans said that they were already feeling severely depressed. Yeah. And that's not a use of language. Yeah, I'm feeling depressed. It's like on a scale of one to 10, you know, put me at the top. And that was two weeks. So I'm thinking that this is just going to be a very, very difficult time. The aftermath of that, regardless of how long it takes for us to get a cure, yeah. just the whole society is going to be challenged. 
changed. And one leader can't do it, but within organizations and within teams, I think we can help other people stand up and be courageous and yeah. be optimistic, right? Yeah. And I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Again, these are my sort of, sort of random thoughts. And that is that Churchill would have approached it as, look, here's the reality. We have all these deaths occurring and we're locked down. The economy is taking a serious hit. Then, okay, switch gears. You say, okay, the reality is this is not going to end society or the world. All the numbers, the projections show uh, steep reductions coming in infection rates and death rates. And, you know, essentially that this too is going to pass and then we're going to rebuild And Here's how we're going to rebuild it. Mm. I think what's very encouraging is to see now how, the, for example, the governors have really risen to this, by the way. Certain governors, have, particularly in the Northeast, where they've kind of united to say, okay, we're going to reopen the economy, we're going to do it right, and we're going to figure out how to do it. But just the fact that they're talking about reopening the economy, I find immensely encouraging. I think Churchill would have really sort of tried to get people to think past into what's coming next once the economy starts coming back. But I also feel that he would have looked for concrete signs of optimism. For example, New York State keeps track of the common flu on a very close basis in flu season. And I've always been fascinated by the flu after having once done something about the bird flu, a piece about that way back when from 10 years ago that happened in Hong Kong. So I've always been kind of a follower of the flu, if you will. And I was wondering to myself what the impact of all this self-isolation is on other more ordinary diseases like the flu. So I went on to this flu tracker in New York State, and I was astonished to find that for the last week that this website was tracking updated intervals. This was the CDC week 13 is what it's called. There was a 77% reduction in cases of common flu versus the week before. You know, so what does that tell you? Guess what? Maybe COVID is somewhat resistant, but the flu is falling through the floor. So how interesting that is. And I think Ryan just about guarantee you that Churchill would have seized on something like that. Very hopeful, right? That, hey, if it works for the common flu, it's going to work for this flu. That's really great. Yeah, there's nothing random about your thinking, Eric, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm convinced on that. Now, Churchill, though, occasionally got a little bit macabre about some of this stuff. For example, he was trying to diminish the uh, fears about the intensity of the nightly bombing and and how effective it was. You know, there's this perception when you've got hundreds and hundreds of bombers coming over every night that the city is going to be laid to waste the next day. And in one speech, he makes the remark that over the preceding night, it took one ton of bombs one ton of German bombs to kill three quarters of a person. (laughs) And that was his way of saying, look, this is not this crushing assault that's going to wipe us off the face of the earth tomorrow. I'm not so sure that that's necessarily the best way to go about it. Did that land with people or was that one of his... It did land. I mean, there was a broader context. I (laughs) I, I just remember that that particular line stuck out. Okay. You know, there's something else that sort of surprised me about him. It didn't really, in the context of learning about him and the way you've written, it didn't surprise me. But in my sense of understanding Churchill, it surprised me, was that he was somebody who got into the nitty gritty. You said that everything mattered to Churchill. He paid attention to everything his direct reports were doing. He read eight newspapers every day, including on Sundays. And you said he succeeded because he intentionally managed the details. And we think, you know, in a business setting that the higher you go, the less attention to details, which I think is 
pure myth, but here's Churchill managing the details. So tell us about that. Well, you know, again, it comes down to the fact that as a leader, he was a nuanced guy. There was no one thing that he specialized in other than being good at a lot of different things. So I think this is part of what made him a particularly good leader. The fact that he was able to compartmentalize. And yes, he paid a lot of attention to detail, but he was also able, had that rare talent, I guess, to also manage the broader, more macro issues at hand. But the value of managing the details for him was that in so doing, he put people, other ministers and other branches of government, he put them on guard that he was watching, that mm-hmm. business as usual would no longer work. And that was the value of it. They could expect a memorandum direct, that they were called minutes, but they could expect one of these memorandums at any time on any subject within their purview, even in the case of the air ministry, down to the number of of guns available for aircraft or the, the number of rifles available to each division in the army. And this had a very powerful effect on those around them of sort of making them step up to the mark and say, okay, I could get a memorandum tomorrow from Churchill about all this stuff. I mean, he did this to keep people sharp, not to threaten. No, no, he did, he right? did this to, you know, yeah. not, not, not to threaten at all. He did this to keep people sharp. I love it. And the flip side of that, though, is that he also appointed people to be his close advisors on this who would help him do this, who would not sugarcoat, who would give him the actual facts of the matter and allow him then to focus these minutes on subjects that were actually quite crucial. And that's another very important thing about leadership is you don't want your close advisors to give you happy talk, to tell you what you want to hear. You don't hire your close advisors just because they're loyal to you, that that's their main strength. You hire these people because you know that in the case of Churchill, you know they're going to stir up trouble. You know they're going to give you the candid opinion. And after all, what use is advice if it's not candid? So that was a very powerful thing that he did as well. Well, I mean, you're describing a guy who wanted to be, knew he was the man of the hour. And yet you're also describing somebody who was so self-secure that he surrounded himself with people who would give him the direct feedback and wouldn't, your language, candy coat it. That is another phenomenal leadership trait that he possessed, right. that he wasn't threatened by other people. In fact, right. one of the things that amused me was in Beaverbrook, here's this guy, he wasn't very healthy, but he was brilliant, and he was this brilliant advisor, and he did this extraordinary work in helping them build planes and you know figure out how to get that done quickly. I mean, he's a pure genius, but he tried to quit like five or six times, and every time Churchill said, <laughs> "You know, I'm not taking that. Go back to work." I just thought that was great. Next time somebody has a, a you know resignation, you just say, oh, "I'm you know I'm not going to accept that. We need you here." Well, I, that was Beaverbrook's way of, you know, as he later said, it was his way of getting Churchill's attention so that Churchill would you know redouble his efforts to. Help, help Beaverbrook attain the goals he needed in terms of ramping up production of fighter aircraft and also subsequent bombers as well. But I have to correct your numbers. The fact is, during that period, he resigned 14 times. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, and he kept them all 14. Well, obviously, he kept them 13 times until he finally let them go. So. <laughs> exactly. Eric, speaking of before you go, is there one thing that you learned about Churchill that we really haven't had a time to discuss, but that you want to make sure that our audience gets to hear? And is there any one more way you think, with all the brilliant ways that you've described him, that we can and should become more Churchillian in our leadership? <laughs> you know, I think the thing that I can't wait most impressed with, the most surprised by actually was was really how much fun 
Churchill was to be around. Again, this cuts to the ability to compartmentalize, to be to be very serious when it's very necessary to be serious, but also to know when it's okay to have fun. And he loved to have fun. He loved to sing. His favorite song was Run, Rabbit, Run, Run, Run. He loved singing songs from The Wizard of Oz, from Gilbert and Sullivan. He loved to dance, believe it or not. He would march to martial music in the Great Hall at Checkers, the Prime Minister Estate. One, one night in particular that I just find emblematic of him was after this big dinner party at Checkers and everybody's still there as guests and he turns on the music, this Martian music, and he's wearing he's wearing this pale blue siren suit, which was this one piece outfit he designed to be put on at a moment's notice. This is like this pale blue thing that first of all made him look like an Easter egg. And second, over this he was wearing this red gold silk dressing gown and he gets his man liquor rifle attaches a bayonet and he does bayonet drills in, in the great hall um at checkers as people are all around him his guests are just laughing this is like one of the funniest things they have ever seen but anyway it was that sense of fun that i think that really really impressed me about well obviously he had a reputation you describe him as being a big drinker he had cocktails lunch that was I don't know if that was just symbolic of the era or a characteristic of him particularly, but you're describing a guy who liked to have fun, who could dress up in like an Easter egg. Was he just that secure at himself or did he not care about what other people thought or was that part of, you know, his construct of how he wanted to be seen? He was very self-secure, very secure. And one of his private sectors said in his diary that Churchill had, had absolutely no sense no sense of personal vanity. And this is a guy who would get out of the bathtub to take a phone call, stark naked, you know, it's that kind of thing. So no, that was just an innate characteristic of him. I have to call this out because you just mentioned it, but when he's just met FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he calls him into yeah. his room and he's completely naked, right? And I mean, it's nothing inappropriate. It was just like, hey, this is where I am at this moment and come on in and we want to talk to you. I thought it was an amazing story. Well, it was a very funny little moment. And the way it worked was that, you know, Churchill's bodyguard had been at the door. There was a knock at the door. He opens it and there's Roosevelt in his wheelchair. And Roosevelt looks to the side and gets this curious look on his face. And, and the bodyguard, Walter Thompson, turns and, and sees behind him. There's Winston Churchill, stark naked, holding a cocktail cigar. <laughs> and Churchill says, no, please, Mr. President, come in. As you can see, the prime minister of the British Empire has nothing to hide from the president <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> I mean, his humor, too, is another element oh, yeah. of this guy. You know, that's incredible. Well, Eric Larson, it has been an extraordinary honor to have you on my podcast. And on behalf of my audience, we congratulate you on the success of your book. As we record this, you are number one on the New York Times bestseller list and number one on Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Quite an accomplishment. And we heartily thank you. Good. I've enjoyed the interview. Thank you. Before I say goodbye, I would like to make the request that you please share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and within your organizations. If there was ever a time when we all needed inspired leadership, that moment is upon us. And the leadership behaviors we just discussed just happen to be the ones that elevate, encourage, embolden, and fortify people, and that's exactly what we're all thirsting for right now. In the COVID era, it's just me and my wonderful producer, Eric Oz, putting this podcast together. And so I send extra special love to Eric. 
And for reasons they'll understand, I do want to say a special thank you to Penny Simon, Ellen Follin, Carrie Finnessy, and my biggest supporter, Ken Boynton. Until next time, please be safe and well. And of course, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you so very much for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.